<laughs> if you don't know Laura, that's a that was great that you shared that encouraging word with us on the role of the church in your life. Well, if you've been uh, if you're visiting with us today, welcome. We're going through the book of Daniel here. We're getting near the end. I wasn't here last week. Craig. Uh, was able to preach admirably out of uh, these visions here in chapter 8, and, and this week we get to continue the series in Daniel going through uh, Daniel chapter 9. Um, yeah, if you have a Bible, open it up to Daniel chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, we will put it up on the screen, but it's great, I think, to be able to look at a text in front of you or download an app on a phone. or There's all kinds of ways to, to read the Bible now, which is good. So starting here in in Daniel chapter 9, starting with verse 1, in the first year of Darius, the son of Azarius, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the numbers of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So the narrative starts, it actually is kind of going back, or it's, it's, it's reminding us, because if you remember, I mean, we've, we've talked about Darius before. This was the king who threw Daniel into the lion's den, this time of, of which you know, the, the Persians took over. And, and here, he's, you have Daniel. Daniel, in that first year, is reading the book of Jeremiah, which is the same Jeremiah we have in our Bibles. He's reading the prophets, and he's struck by the message of the prophets because the prophets have all been giving the same message, and Jeremiah especially, have been giving this message of God's impending judgment on Israel for their sin, that they will be judged, they will be carried away into exile for 70 years, and then they will return. And Daniel is reading this, and it, it calls to mind for us the history of God's people I mean, because that's really what the prophets continually do. If you've ever read any of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, any of these, I mean, they all really are telling the same story, and they're just telling the story of Israel, how God chose this people, right? And if you know the book of Genesis at all, I mean, God just chose this one family, this one man, Abraham, and out of his family, I choose you, he said, right? And he, he covenanted to them. He promised to them, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. The prophets frame it in terms of a marriage, that God married Israel as his bride, that he took Israel. Ezekiel gives this beautiful picture of Israel as this young girl who God passes by and marries, who no one wanted, that she was an outcast. Nobody wanted her, but God took her and married her and then clothed her in beauty and made her the most beautiful woman in the world. That's the way Ezekiel is told. This beautiful imagery. I chose you. I've given everything to you. And if you know the history of Israel, Israel, he did. He did everything for them and he saved them time and time and time and time again. He saves them and he clothes them in righteousness and he brings them into a land. He gives them a king. He gives them a kingdom. I mean, under David and Solomon, that was, that was a great kingdom that Israel had. However, and the prophets continually tell us this, they were given everything, but the whole time they were unfaithful to God. They enjoyed all the things God did for them, but they always turned to other gods for their source of comfort and power and strength. 
They were adulterous. The prophets continually give this picture of an adulterous bride that while this girl, right, he was so faithful, God was so faithful, took her and gave her everything that this bride gave all of those gifts that God had given, gave them to all these other gods, all these other lovers, right, and was unfaithful, chronically unfaithful to her husband. And this is the sin of Israel, that Israel has a husband. Israel has a God who promised to be their God, to always protect them and care for them. And Israel loves to receive those benefits, but always turns to other gods in those moments of crisis. Their heart is just chronically unfaithful. And so God is going to judge them. And the judgment that befell upon them, right, which Daniel now is in, in exile, was God took away the things that they were putting their hope in. Right, God promised them a land. He promised them a king. He promised them a kingdom. Well, they had those things. They had a king. They had a land. They had this holy city. They had the temple. God just took it all away and said, no, right? you don't understand. You've been putting your hope in all the things that I give you, but you didn't love me. So what should I do with you? I'm going to take away all of those things. I'm going to take away all of the good things that I've given you, but not just to take them away. Right? And the promise of Jeremiah was that I will destroy you so I can rebuild you. Like I will uproot you just so I can plant you again. And the image throughout the prophets is, right, like I will judge you as my adulterous bride, but I will marry you again. And this time when I do it again, you will not be unfaithful to me, that I will change your heart so that we will do this again, right? We will have this covenant again. I will go enter into marriage with you once again but it'll be different and you won't be able to cheat on me ever again. And so their hope, the hope of the prophets then has always been pointing to this day, this day of the Lord it's called, all the way through the prophets. Israel's always talking about the day of the Lord is coming. And when the day of the Lord comes, everything will be set back right again. Everything will be put back into its order and they will have their Lord and they will have their hope finally realized. So Daniel reads this, he's reading the prophets, he's reading Jeremiah, and he has this insight, and he realizes, right, the end of the exile is near, because Jeremiah laid it out, 70 years, you're going to go to Babylon for 70 years, and then you'll come back. And he realizes, well, Darius is here, the end of the 70 years is at hand, like we're, we're there, we're, we've reached the finish line, and this causes Daniel to pray. So in verse 3, so if you look at 3 through 6 here, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. This prayer of Daniel, and striking how he uses we. What did Daniel do? Daniel has only been faithful to God. Daniel's never sinned, according to the text. You know, I mean, how can he say this? But he recognizes Israel's sin as his sin. He recognizes this, right, that what he is suffering, he deserves. Not because of his sin, but because of his family's sin, because of what 
this whole nation sin, he recognizes it and he turns to this, right? We didn't listen. You have been telling us, right? And if you've read the Bible, Genesis on, I mean, God continually tells his people time and time again, like, I am your God, turn away from all other gods, you shall have no other gods before me, right? The first commandment is the only commandment, just trust me. And Daniel's saying, we didn't listen, we've never listened, our kings didn't listen, our princes didn't listen, we didn't listen, we didn't trust. Verse 7, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. Just the confession continues, and he gives this right to you and to us, right? To God, to you belong everything good. To God belongs righteousness, mercy, forgiveness. He says, to us belongs shame. Open shame, because we have not listened. We have sinned. Verse 12. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Right, so again, the confessions just continue right, with this. We haven't owned up to our sin. The calamity has come upon us. This will be the message of all the prophets will do this, especially Ezekiel. Ezekiel will be a contemporary of Daniel. Like if you didn't know that, Ezekiel is also there in captivity with him. Daniel is right, running the government. He's a worker, right? And Ezekiel will be a prophet to the people. And he's going to tell the people in exile, own up to your sin because they're not. They're blaming their fathers, right? They're ba- blaming past generations. They read the prophets. They see the sin. They say, yeah, during the judges, I get it. Wow, Israel didn't listen. Yep, we're suffering for their sin. 
Daniel says, all right, no, I have the same, this is my sin. We haven't listened. Rather than, right, this judgment that came upon us, that should have led us to beg your mercy and forgiveness, which, which would have happened in the ancient world. All the ancient world did have this idea that like, you had a patron god of your city. And if your city fell in battle, the only, the only reason was that your god had abandoned you. Right? That, that, that must be the reason that we fell in battle, that our god left us. Right? The temple got destroyed. Well, the god must have left that city. Israel got destroyed. All other nations, what they did was they pleaded and begged their God to return. Israel didn't. Israel used it as an excuse right, to just go and live and do what they wanted to do now. Well, God left us anyway. Right, just wallowing in this self-pity, right, in the judgment that came upon them. They weren't taking ownership of their sin. Right, we have sinned. We have sinned. We have done wickedly. Then and now, Daniel says. And then in verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. It's an amazing prayer. I mean, I mean it's really amazing. Right? You should look at this prayer over the week. I mean, you know, copy and paste this, print it out, put it on a mirror. I mean, look, this prayer is unbelievable. Right? It's an amazing, amazing prayer, a model prayer in so many ways. And Daniel is plead, pleading with God for the restoration of Jerusalem. Right? Lord, restore the city. Listen, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see. Right? He is begging with God. But his plea, his request to God is not based on Daniel's righteousness. Even though Daniel did have a, a bit of righteousness to stand on, he doesn't make the appeal based on his righteousness because he's already just confessed that he is, he's owning up to all of the sins of Israel are his. But rather, the request is based upon God's great mercy. Hear, forgive, pay attention, and act. And the characteristics of Daniel's prayer here, what really make it stand out, right? If you just look at this section, this, this prayer, it's, it's motivated, right, by God's word, which is really striking, right? He reads the prophet Jeremiah. He hears that the end of the 70 years is at hand. He knows that they're about to come back. He knows that God is about to fulfill his word and restore Jerusalem. And Daniel prays for this. 
he's not motivated by his circumstances, but rather he's motivated out of God's word. And he gives this just praise and adoration, confession and thanks and supplication, right? I mean, you read any book on prayer, and they talk about the elements of good prayers. And this is what you, Daniel, whoa, right? Like, this is it. He nails it. This is the perfect prayer. I mean, it's, only, it's like Christ's prayer. It's like the Lord's prayer. I mean, it's unbelievable how perfect it is. And it, he takes prayer, right? We know from the narratives earlier that this isn't just a one-time deal that Daniel is doing. He didn't just read the prophet and then all of a sudden decide, I should pray, and then never again, right? This is the prayer he's doing three times a day that gets him in trouble, right? That they, how they get him in the lion's den. This is what he's praying. He hears that the end is coming, right? He knows that the day of the Lord is coming very soon, and he prays. He prays fervently. He prays disciplined, right? He prays this prophetic prayer again and again and again every day for three times a day. It'll be interesting, he only gets one response, just coming to this prayer, but he continues in this prayer, just continues in this prayer. And he is responding, it gives us a picture, a helpful reminder of what prayer actually is, right? Biblically, what is a prayer? It's a response to God, right? Daniel is responding to who God is. He is responding to God, he is responding to his word, and he is praying back to God, right, what he is seeing in the word. Right, what he sees in the prophets, he's giving to the Lord. He's praying to him. It's this you know, experiential prayer where you experience God. You've experienced the word. I've experienced the covenant. I experienced his word. I experienced the promises, and I pray it back to him. And like we're going to see, and he will experience God as a result of this. This living God experiencing scripture anew. In verse 20. We get the response. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Daniel's prayer was heard and answered. As he's speaking, it's answered. Gabriel comes and he tells him, yes, the word of God is true. Yes, 70 weeks are going to be decreed. Now, already you're at weeks. I thought it was years. I have 70 weeks are decreed, but that there will be an end. There, this will finish. There will be a finish to this, an end to the transgression, an end of sin, an everlasting righteousness will come, right? This, it is coming, Daniel. You're right. Verse 25. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, 
It shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decree end is poured out on the desolator. Daniel's prayer is answered. There is hope in the midst of this darkness that he's in. There is a day that is coming. God hears and he answers the prayer. And it's good news that Gabriel gives. right? And that, especially that first section where we just read right away. He's like, yep, 70 weeks and it's all going to end. Oh, that's great news. I can make it 70 more weeks. Then it gets a little weirder and a little harder, right? As he starts to talk about these, then there's another week, and then there's seven more, and then there's 62 weeks, and then there's a prince, and then another ruler, and a desolator. And you're like, wait, whoa, whoa, what's going on? I just wanted you to tell me when this is going to be done, and just give me the good news. And it's good news, but it's a challenge Right, there's a challenge to this, the 77s, right? The 70 times 7 kind of idea. He keeps using the 7 and 70 and all those types of things. And it's a challenge to Daniel's perspective on time. That's really what Gabriel is doing for Daniel. Saying, yep, yeah, you, you read Jeremiah. You understand that the 70 years is almost done and we're coming back. But I want to challenge the way that you view time. This is the same way that like, Christ is going to challenge Peter. If you know that, like, how many times am I supposed to forgive 70 times 7. Was that a literal, like, okay, at that point I can stop forgiving? Right? No, Jesus is just challenging Peter. This, like, imagine as many times as possible. Right? Like, no, there's no set number. And, and it's the same way here that, that Gabriel challenges Daniel. Daniel has this expectation. The 70 years is just about done. We're going to go home, and this will be it. The promise will be fulfilled. Things will be restored, Gabriel is saying, but not when you think. It's not going to look like you think it's going to look, and it's not going to happen when you think it's going to happen. An anointed one will come, but that won't even be enough. It's not even going to end there when the anointed one comes. There will be desolations, there will be floods and wars, and there will finally be one right, who will rise up and eventually be destroyed as well. Right? Like it, it's, there's a long way to go, Daniel. Right? He challenges him. Daniel's prayers have been heard. God will be faithful to the promise, that promise he made of a king, a kingdom, a people, a city. It's going to come, but it won't come easily, and it won't come quickly. It'll come in stages, it seems to be what Gabriel is saying. You'll get the city back. Then you'll get a king, but that king will be cut off. And then you're going to have the hope of a future kingdom one day that'll come and take care of everything else. And it challenges Daniel, and it challenges the reader, it would have challenged Israel to think in terms of, right, a bigger timeline, a greater timeline. You know, will when will everything finally be restored? God is in control. Suffering and trial and pain is part of the process. But one day it's going to come to a climactic finish where God will win. That's a beautiful picture. It really is the picture of Revelation. Revelation kind of picks up the story from there, which is what George will come and, and preach on, the picture of that day, that end 
Daniel was really hopeful that this would be the end of it, but that final end is still coming. And this, this picture then with, with Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, right? It's, it's an amazing little window into Daniel's life, and the vision is very important, right, that Gabriel gives in the way that it challenges Daniel, but it's not the whole thing, right? And in fact, it seems that the whole narrative is more important than actually getting the vision down, right? Because it seems that throughout it, Daniel continually is confused by the visions, and the angel has to continually kind of press him to like, no, it's not about understanding the visions, right? It's about understanding who God is, and it's really the same for us. And the point of Daniel, and the point of this narrative, right, it is to show us, ultimately, Daniel, and it's to show us how to wait, how to live in exile, how to wait for the coming day of the Lord. This is the writings. Daniel is part of the writings. It's actually not part of the prophets. He's reading the prophets, right? So it's intended to show you, here's someone, right? Here's multiple people from Daniel to his friends to Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar. Here's multiple people and how they lived during that in-between time. How did they understand the prophets? What, how did they wait for the coming day of the Lord? And you see that with Daniel. And Daniel is this example in so many ways of how to wait, how to wait with wisdom and hope, right? We saw how to live in a culture the way that Daniel does, right? Not being tossed to and fro, able to serve wicked kings, be part of a culture, but not lose hope of the coming king, all of those things. And Daniel here, and the way he prays is amazing, right? When you look at Daniel, Daniel is confronted by Scripture, He's confronted by his context. He's lived through so much at this point in his life, and he prays. He prays fervently, diligently, three times a day. He is praying powerfully, prophetically, experientially, right? Praying back the scriptures, and he even gets answers to his prayers. Can you imagine? I mean, I've never had this, right? An angel coming and giving me the answer because I'm loved. An angel showing up. I, God loves you so much and he heard your prayer and now he wants to come and just tell it to you. He doesn't need to, but I just want to give you a good news that Daniel, keep praying for what you're praying for because it's really going to happen. Wow. To find that kind of favor, the favor of Daniel, right? I mean, Daniel in the den, the favor he finds with God is unbelievable. And the favor he finds in his prayer is unbelievable. Right? When James writes in the New Testament about right, the prayers of a faithful man, right? I mean, this is, whew, Daniel does it. He's got it down. And he's able to pray. Oh, to be able to pray like Daniel. But as I look at my prayer life and I look at the way that I respond to my world, I right? I, I don't. I am far from Daniel. I think if there's one experience that almost every Christian has had, right, it's disappointment in their prayer life. It is hard. It's really hard to pray fervently, to pray powerfully, to pray prophetically. It is difficult. I think everyone has prayed at some point, right? Maybe you grew up very irreligious, Right, not, and maybe you still are not really sure about Jesus, but there have been times in your life where you have prayed. Right? And there's those of you who are very religious, have grown up your whole life in the church and pray, and maybe even pray regularly, disciplined, but it's not powerful. <laughs> you don't experience the power, it just become a duty of prayer. It's hard. 
And, and it, it causes us to ask these questions, right? Like, why? Why is prayer so hard? Why is, it, why is our experience of prayer so unlike Daniel's? You know, he's confronted by Scripture and he prays, what am I confronted by that draws me to prayer? Right? And if I look at my prayer life, it's usually driven by pain, driven by fears, need. A need has presented itself in me or in someone else. Or the feeling of duty, religious obligation, that really gets me most of the time. I feel like I need to do this. I'm going to start working harder at this. Or it's sometimes out of celebration, right? Like something great happened, I feel the need to pray, and that's good. And so I pray, and we all pray, but it it feels lacking. Why? Why is it so lacking? Why is it so hard? And I think we see this. We see it within Daniel. We see it within the New Testament, right? We see it throughout Scripture. It takes... It takes discipline to pray, to pray well, to pray fervently, right? Daniel prays three times a day. He's only answered once. It's hard. It's hard to be disciplined in prayer. I start out well, and then it kind of falls apart. And I think above everything, right, I don't know that I'm convinced that I need to pray all the time, right, if you're like me. I feel like it's good to pray, but I don't know that I need to pray. I mean, God's still in control. He's still going to answer. I mean, he's going to take care of this whether I pray or not. So do I really need to pray? I don't know, right, either, right, you could be in this position where you really feel like, look, either prayer doesn't work anyway, it's just a bunch of nonsense, right, that religious people do, or I don't really need the help anyway. I've got things pretty well under control. What's the point of praying? It's... It's hard. It's hard to kind of muster up a heart that wants to pray, a heart that is compelled to pray, that really, right, takes us to our knees regularly through the dry spells or the exciting times and says, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray fervently and powerfully and out of Scripture. But while it's hard to get the heart to pray, we also know right, if you've, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time or you've just even heard the stories of Christianity or been around... We also know how powerful prayer really is, and we also know how great it is and what it does give, because we've all tasted a little bit of it too, how prayer, right? When I'm in prayer and when I'm disciplined in my prayer life, how it gives me a better perspective, it reorientates my life, right? It it makes me thankful. It gives me awe, right? And you've experienced this. I've experienced this. When I pray, I am a far more thankful person, right? I'm far less selfish, I'm far more looking at a bigger picture than myself. I see a bigger story than just my story when I pray, when I'm regular in my prayer. I encounter a greater amount of strength when I pray, right? You guys have done this as well, right? Those times in my life where I have driven, been driven to knees and to pray and to pray regularly, right? That spiritual union with God is real, that, that Scripture promises. It's a real thing, and I've encountered it. You've encountered it. You've seen it. You've heard it, right? It, it does happen where I get strength out of prayer. My prayer life strengthens me. I know that it gives me that, and it gives me this spiritual reality, right? It seeks this presence of God, right? I become more and more aware of His presence. I become more and more aware of a whole nother reality, than this physical reality that I walk in, right? Which is powerful. It gives me more knowledge of myself, too, in prayer, right? The more and more I pray, 
the more that it requires of me and creates in me honesty. It's very hard to pray and not be honest. It requires it, but it also creates it. The more and more I do these things. Trust as well. It's very, very hard to pray without trusting God. It requires trust on the front end to pray. And it also creates more and more trust in me as I pray. Because I, I can't trust in myself and pray. Those two things can't work together, right? It's like, who am I praying? Lewis, right? C.S. Lewis talks about this, of like people who are prideful and pray are praying to some made-up God that doesn't exist. You can't be full of yourself and pray. It just doesn't work. I mean, you can, but you're not praying to the living and holy God. He creates humility in you. He creates trust in you. And ultimately, right, he creates this surrender, right? Praying requires and creates surrender, a surrender of my whole life to God. I know that prayer is a good thing. I've tasted and seen. And I'm guessing most of you have too, right? We've prayed and we've encountered God in prayer. We know we need to pray more. We want to pray more, but it's hard, right? It's hard. We don't have a heart to pray. I don't. I don't have a heart to pray. When I pray, it's out of selfishness. It's out of duty, or it's just haphazard. When I feel like it, I pray, which is, right, I know is not what God has intended. I know that's not what I was made for. I know that there would be more power in my life. I know that there'd be a more experience of God in my life if I was more disciplined in my prayers, right? if I was praying more like Daniel. So how do we get there, right? How do I become, how do I have these prayers more and more and more? And the way that we respond to this, right, reveals a lot about us because we can respond to this kind of idea, to Daniel's example in a few ways. If you have an overly religious heart, it's all right, I get it. I get it, Lawrence. I'm going to double down. <laughs> Starting today, I'm going to get my planner out. I'm going to schedule this prayer life, and I'm going to do this, right? And that's, that's one way to respond. Many of us respond that way, but it's, right, it, we've been down that road. It has the appearance of wisdom, but it can't overcome my heart, I can agree to something, I can resolve to do it, but it doesn't, it's not going to give me a heart to pray, but it's going to give me the discipline. And the discipline of prayer is good, but it's not enough. Or we can take the irreligious route, you can say like, yeah, forget it, it's all a waste of time anyway. Who cares? You know, it's just to make yourself feel better anyway, I don't really need to pray. So where do we look? Well, Daniel's prayer ultimately points us right? Because the book of Daniel points us to Jesus. Daniel is not the only person in Scripture who prays. And everyone who prays in the Bible is ultimately praying to Christ, who is ultimately the one who prays for us and teaches us to pray and points us to his prayers, right? Because really, when you look at, I mean, Daniel's prayers are good, but they're not Jesus's. When you look at Jesus, he prays like Daniel, but even better, right? He prays just as fervently, just as dedicated. He does it not just in his room, but in the desert, right? Jesus prays not just, right, 
on his knees, but Jesus will be sweating blood, he'll pray so fervently. Like Jesus' prayer life is the prayer life. He prays the way we were meant to pray. He even taught us how to pray, right? I mean, that's, that's in the gospel. He teaches his disciples how to pray, pray like this, which is the way he prays, which is the way to pray. And he prays on our behalf. Daniel, right, prays on his own behalf, which is good. He lumps Israel into his sin and says, we have sinned. Jesus will pray for us on the cross. And ultimately, every prayer that we utter now, right, because of Christ and what he has done, we pray in the name of Jesus, which is a better way to pray than the way that Daniel had to pray. I get to pray in and through Christ, which is my qualification and access. I have access now, right? Paul will say this in Ephesians, through Christ, we have access to the Father by the Spirit. That word access, it really comes, it's supposed to bring to mind this kingly relationships, this high court, really what Daniel and Esther and everybody encounters during the exile, right? Like the fear, can I go before the king and live? Because that always seems to be everyone's fear. Like who has access to the king? Daniel gains access to the kings. Nobody else does. Esther gets access, but she doesn't know if she's going to die. Who has access? I have access. Because of Christ, I have access to the Father. Right? Who gets away? Right? I think Tim Keller writes this in his book on prayer. Right? Who, who can get away with waking up a king at 2 in the morning to ask for a glass of water? A, only a child. A beloved child would be the only one who could get away with waking a king, bothering a king in the middle of the night. But that's who we are. That's what Christ secured for us, that I am a beloved child of the king. I have access. I can call him. I can interrupt him. I can access him anytime. And it's not that I just have that access to him, but I know that it's secured by what Jesus endured and what he encountered. How do I know that I can pray to God? Right, because that's part of my problem is ultimately I, I doubt whether my prayers are really being heard, whether they're really necessary, whether I really need to do it. How do I know this? Because I know that I have access because Jesus' prayers went unanswered. Jesus prayed and he was not answered by the Father. He prayed for the cup to be removed from him and it wasn't. He prayed to God on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His prayers went unanswered so that my prayers will always be answered. I was brought into the family. I was made a child because Christ was cut out of the family. He was cut out of the, he lost access to his father so he could bring me in. And give me and give you, give us access to make us children of the King. The love and the mercy of God. It's not enough just to hear about that we have all this access, we have all this love, we have all this mercy. We also have to be confronted by the cost of that love and that mercy, the cost of our access to the King, the cost of our ability to pray. When I think of that, when I think of what Christ endured on my behalf, when I think of his prayers going unanswered so that my prayers will never be unanswered, 
of him being cut out of the family so that I could be brought in, right? it, it, it melts me. Right? It breaks me. That pride and that arrogance starts to crumble. How do we find a heart to pray? Because that's our problem. Our problem isn't that we don't pray enough or that we pray too little. It's not... Now, we have to get practically... We, we do. I mean, for many of you, right, you can look at your life and you know where there's areas where it's like, I have failed when it comes to prayer <laughs> and I need to make some steps. That's good. We need to make some steps towards prayer. I mean, we're in the season of Lent right now. Good grief. This is a good time to make some efforts in our religious life to become more fervent in our prayer life. This is good, but actions are not going to be enough for me, right? Not, it's not going to be a 40-day, once-a-year thing. I need a heart that actually wants to pray. And how do I get a heart that prays? Every time, every time I remember who I am in Christ, that word of God comes home to me again. And, we'll f- and I find in myself, right, a heart to pray. We need the word of Christ to come home. We need to be reminded of who we are, being children of the King, members of the household of God, purchased at a great price, knowing who we are and who our Father is, our true Father, being confronted by that reality again and again and again. Every time I'm confronted with my true identity, my heart starts to change. I can do a lot of actions, but my heart never changes. But when I'm confronted with who I truly am and the cost of making me that, of securing that for me, I pray. So look at, look at your life. Look at, look at the way that you have responded historically to a need for prayer in your life. Has, is prayer just a religious duty with no heart or power behind it? Do you feel like your prayers are unanswered and worthless anyway? Where, where are you in your prayer life? What truth? Because ultimately it comes down to the, what truth then have you forgotten? Because the weaknesses, the deficiencies in our prayer life are not have to do with our effort, but has to do with the lack of our knowing the truth. What aspect of the gospel have you forgotten? What truth of Christ are you not confronting yourself with? Remind yourself, where can Christ, right, empower you to pray? Take the steps and look to Christ. Hear his voice, right? The prayer of Daniel here that we would hear the voice of God. We have heard the voice of God. And we hear it again and again and again. The voice of God says to us, this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. I find no fault. We need to hear that voice and let that voice settle deep within our heart so that it changes our heart to pray more and more and more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, to you belong, belongs all glory and honor and praise. You are a righteous God slow to anger and abounding in love and mercy. 
Lord, we confess to you our sin, just like Daniel, that our heart is so quick to wander, that we are so quick to use you and enjoy the things that you give us, but not actually love you. And that even when we seek you, it's for selfish reasons. We do not deserve your love and your mercy. Lord, we are confronted and humbled by the fact that though we were your enemy, you died for us, that you sent your Son in our place to receive the alienation and the rejection that was due to, for us, and that he secured for us right standing with you, access to you, Lord, that you look upon us now just as we are, just as we've always been, you look at us and say, this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. I find no fault. How can you say that when you look at our lives and you look at our hearts? Lord, if there is anything that could draw us to pray, it's that. Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we worship you for who you are. And because of that, Lord, it gives us confidence and boldness to come to you and to ask for the very things that you are planning to do in this world because we have access to you, that we can ask these things, we can petition you to work in our city, in our, in our families, in our house churches, in our lives. Lord, we can ask you to bring your kingdom here because it's the very thing you are working for, Lord, and we can ask these things with confidence, not based on our righteousness, but based on yours which you have given to us. Lord, help us. Give us hearts to pray. Lord, grow us in our faith. Lord, help us in our weakness to turn to you. In your name we pray, with confidence and boldness because of Christ. Amen.